On November 13, 1961, hundreds of air raid sirens rang out from coast to coast, and an eerie voice came over loudspeakers announcing that Canada was under attack. Fourteen nuclear missiles were already on their way towards the nation's cities and major military bases. A somber voice through the loudspeakers then went on to tell startled citizens that this was the beginning of a countrywide drill, and that for the next 24 hours, Canada would be behaving as if it had just been the subject of a massive nuclear strike. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard, the podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes, with your host and author, Andrew McLean. For many Canadians, all of this came as a surprise. While there had been some talk of the exercise beforehand, Vague talk in the newspapers was very different from having air raid sirens going off for three minutes straight, followed by a voice announcing that nuclear missiles had been launched at you. The Prime Minister came on the television at exactly 8pm Atlantic Time to make a national address. Seeing the Prime Minister on TV at all back in 1961 was still something of a rarity which really drove home all the seriousness of the drill. Emergency broadcast took over all the radio stations across the country, carrying his message to Canadian citizens. In a somber tone, Prime Minister John Diefenbaker announced, My fellow Canadians, you have just heard the siren sound of the national alert. This is an exercise and a test. All of us pray that it will never be required as a reality. But if war comes, the alert warning would mean that the Continental Air Defense System had detected and identified a likely attack on North America. Diefenbaker went on to tell the public that in three hours and ten minutes, the nation's capital would be destroyed by a nuclear warhead. Thirty-five minutes later, Toronto would be destroyed, and six minutes after that, Montreal would be wiped out. As New Brunswickers watched, they learned that Chatham, then home of a large Air Force base, was the target of an incoming nuclear missile. Additionally, nearby Bangor and Presque Isle in Maine were going to be struck by nuclear bombs, and the fallout would soon be carried by winds into their province. Nova Scotians watching were informed by the somber Prime Minister of the Dire News. In a matter of hours, their capital and most populous city, Halifax, would be utterly wiped out by a 5 megaton nuclear bomb. Top officials in the government, both federally and of all 10 provinces, began to implement their emergency response plan for such a crisis. They were to flee their respective capitals for military bases. From there, they would receive messages detailing twists and fate of the crisis, such as fresh emergencies breaking out, people requiring assistance, or changes in weather that would bring the nuclear fallout into new communities. They would then coordinate their responses from their bunkers, as if this were a real nuclear attack. This extensive nationwide drill was called Exercise Toxin B. 
Toxin, T-O-C-S-I-N, is an archaic word which means the ringing of the church bells of a village to warn of an incoming attack. Definitely no longer used as a word, um, but a few centuries ago, it was a word in both English and French, and of course, bilingualism is always a Canadian priority, even in nuclear wars. Exercise Toxin B was a massive exercise for the top government and military officials in how they would ensure ultimate public survival in the event of a catastrophic nuclear war. While public survival was the overarching goal, the best way to achieve this, the government had decided, was through the continuance of the government, which some might consider a rather biased view. Between the screaming air raid sirens and the dour national address from their prime minister, the public were told to stay calm and not do anything out of the ordinary as the massive emergency test went on. Canadians were asked to spend this time considering their family's plans for survival. While the citizens were being told to go about their business in this nuclear drill, top political leaders from both the federal and provincial governments were being evacuated to rural military bases from which they would manage affairs after the nuclear bombs had killed 2 million Canadians. Canadians, for their part, were not amused. It was a Monday. They had work to do. They had lives to live. And everything was being disrupted by these deafening air raid sirens which ran for three minutes straight, followed by an announcement that nuclear bombs were incoming. Then, to add insult to injury, they had to watch the spectacle of their duly elected political leaders scurry to safety while they were left to, quote-unquote, die. Remarkably, the government and military appeared to have genuinely not expected how upset people would be over the air raid sirens blaring suddenly for three minutes straight and a voice telling them that nuclear bombs were headed for Canada's cities and military bases. Police around the country were swamped with thousands of calls from angry and terrified Canadians. The exercise got off to a bad start when it turned out that many of the 500 air raid sirens installed across Canada didn't actually work. In Montreal, they were so quiet that they were practically inaudible. In Vancouver, one air raid siren actually caught fire. All the provincial premiers scurried off to safety, except one. In New Brunswick, the premier was the recently elected Louis Robichaud, who had been voted in on an ambitious platform to reform and modernize his province. For Robichaud, the timing was appalling. Exercise Toxin B occurred the day of the opening of the legislature, which was an important day for rolling out his ambitious agenda. Premier Robichaud decided that he was actually too busy governing to play war games, so he simply ignored the drill. He did, however, send his top officials and ministers to participate in the exercise as if it were real, which did give New Brunswick some government representation in the exercise. Meanwhile, in Ottawa, 
Prime Minister John Diefenbaker, despite having approved the operation, suddenly decided as soon as it started that he did not, in fact, want to evacuate after all. Perhaps it occurred to him that the optics of elected officials fleeing and leaving their citizens to die might not reflect well upon him when the next election rolled by. So while the rest of the government evacuated to the army base Camp Patawawa, the Prime Minister stayed home with his advisors in 24 Sussex Drive's nuclear bunker. As the drill continued, the nuclear bombs hit. Exercise Toxin B was organized so that the government and the military leaders would receive new messages detailing what was happening and would have to react to them as if it was a real nuclear attack. Through these messages, government leaders soon learned that the nation's capital had been utterly annihilated by a direct nuclear strike. The direct hit had been too much for the bunker at 24 Sussex Drive to withstand, and so the Prime Minister was dead. At Camp Petawawa, where the remains of the government huddled, Defense Minister Harkness was appointed Prime Minister. He immediately invoked the War Measures Act, giving himself almost dictatorial levels of pretend power. The remains of the government assessed the damage of the nuclear strike. Canada's six largest military bases, along with seven cities, had been destroyed by the missiles. Of the survivors, half the country was without electricity. The St. Lawrence Seaway system was in ruins, rail service had been knocked out, two million Canadians were dead, and a further one million were suffering from radiation poisoning. Furthermore, the radiation was blowing in on the winds from the nuclear fallout from the simultaneous nuclear attacks on new American cities. Despite the catastrophic damage and the horrific casualties suffered in the attack, the remains of the national and provincial governments set about their goal of ensuing public survival. 14 million Canadians had survived the attack, and the government needed to find ways to ensure that they could all be fed, given medicine, and essential services be restored. Efforts were made in the secret bases, where the national and provincial governments hid, to figure out how they would go about restoring rail service, transportation of food, medicine, and essential goods across the country, and how to get medical aid to the stricken regions. In New Brunswick, the Central Emergency Centre was run out of the forestry school in Fredericton. In the command centre, those coordinating the emergency response received a succession of messages about continuing crises, the kinds of ongoing disasters which were considered likely in the immediate aftermath of a nuclear attack. So the following are some of the actual examples of some of the many, many messages coming in through the little ticker tape machine at the command center in Fredericton that they were receiving about the local provincial disasters, and then they had to solve them by coordinating with local officials on agencies on the ground in different communities in order to solve these crises before the next one came in. Ride at the Moncton Airport by people trying to flee. The province's entire North Shore requiring evacuation to Moncton after the initial nuclear bomb strike on Chatham to escape the radiation. Survivors from the nuclear attack on Chatham Air Base requiring medical attention. 
The wind shifting from the nuclear strike in Bangor in such a way that radioactive fallout is moving towards St. John, requiring 20,000 St. Johners to be evacuated to Fredericton. The wind suddenly shifting from the Halifax nuclear strike and blowing towards Moncton, requiring the rerouting of the North Shore refugees towards Fredericton instead. Preparations being made to register, feed, house, and provide medical attention to the coming influx of tens of thousands of refugees to Fredericton. An influx of Nova Scotian refugees coming towards Moncton and requiring aid. RCMP officers angry at being sent into the fallout. The message reads in part that they were proving to be as sensitive to radiation as ordinary men. Rioting and looting in Alma requiring boats of police from St. John to be sent over. An airplane laden with supplies crashing en route to Chatham. A busload of inmates from Lancaster Mental Hospital being struck by a train. A school bus full of 40 children crashing on the Moncton Riverview Bridge and catching fire. So needless to say, they were pretty intense about this exercise. Despite the myriad of imaginary disasters that happened in those 24 hours, New Brunswick actually fared better at responding to them than much of the country. In anticipation of a large-scale disaster, the provincial telephone company called NBTEL had installed closed circuits between municipalities and department heads in Fredericton. In their debrief after it was all over, the coordinators congratulated themselves for having performed a truly marvelous feat. When exercise toxin B was over 24 hours after it began, the government leaders emerged from their military bases and their bunkers to find that Canadians were distinctly less than impressed with the whole debacle. To the Canadian public, it seemed awfully self-serving that their politicians and bureaucrats' top priority was saving the lives of politicians and top bureaucrats. The army, in particular, had hoped that Exercise Toxin B would stimulate the increased interest in survival or civil defense. In their report afterwards, they railed against the public for having a cynical attitude. To the Canadian public, it was the officials who were seen as those ones with the cynical attitudes. Especially so in the case of the premiers, the prime ministers, and the top officials of the Ontario and Nova Scotia governments, who had fled their respective capitals of Toronto and Halifax, leaving the citizens who elected them to die in a nuclear blast. While newspaper stories praised the government's competent response in the exercise, the letters to the editor told a very different story. According to the Army's own assessment, three quarters of the public commentary sent in about the exercise was either unsupportive or critical. The Canadian public learned that in a time of crisis, their government would abandon them. New Brunswick's Premier Robichaud and Prime Minister John Diefenbaker, however, were praised by the public for bravely staying in their capitals with their people. However, the fact that the Prime Minister stayed behind and died while hiding in his bunker was perhaps the public's biggest takeaway from Exercise Toxin B. For the preceding decade, Canadians who were wealthy enough to own a house with a yard 
had been told over and over that they should build a backyard bomb shelter to protect them from a nuclear bomb. Hearing that the Prime Minister had died in his bomb shelter in the exercise effectively killed off the backyard nuclear bomb shelter industry overnight. The exercise also served to highlight the stark differences between middle-class Canadians who could afford backyard bomb shelters, or even simply had basements, and the working-class citizens who could not. It became painfully clear in the course of the exercise that the odds of survival in a nuclear attack would be much higher for the upper class and the middle class than it would be for the working class. And that after that radioactive fallout blew in, there'd be nowhere for lower income people to go. This led to calls to build underground bunker systems in cities, an idea which got bogged down in a quiz-essentially Canadian battle over federal versus provincial jurisdiction and funding and never went anywhere. Exercise Toxin B had been planned to be the first in many nuclear drills to prepare the public for a nuclear war. The plans for the future ones would involve much more public participation. However, in the government's view, the division and the inequality between Canadians that the exercise exposed was not worth whatever training and experience that was gleaned through the exercise. And Exercise Toxin B would be the last time that air raid sirens ever rang out in unison, from coast to coast. That was Backyard History, with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.